Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 42, How Ben Marcus Writes. Do you enjoy listening to all of the amazing answers that guests give when I ask about their one piece of writing advice? If so, I have good news for you, my friend. I have compiled the first 35 responses in a free ebook. The answers are all sorts of awesome, with some inspirational and others a total kick in the pants. I cannot tell you how much fun it was to go back and listen to all of these amazing authors share their one piece of advice for writers. So if you want to download your free ebook, it's free. Go to howwriterswrite.com slash ebook. Just fill in some information and I will send it off to you and hope you enjoy it. Okay, so this interview with Ben was a real treat. Ben is a literary treasure trove. He is humble and gracious and share so much information and wisdom for fiction writers. I think you'll find because Ben is an educator, he really knows how to communicate these huge writing concepts in ways that anyone can understand. I want to say a special thank you to Ben for his time and his graciousness. And now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Ben Marcus. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and today my guest is Ben Marcus. Ben is the author of five books of fiction, which are The Age of Wire and String, Notable American Women, The Flame Alphabet, and Leaving the Sea. His newest book, Notes from the Fog, was published in August 2018. His stories, essays, and reviews have appeared all over the place, Harper's, New Yorker, Granta, Paris Review, and lots of other places. He is also the editor of the Anchor Book of New American Short Stories and New American Stories. He is a recipient of the Berlin Prize and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Among his other honors, if you need some more, are a Whiting Writers Award, a Creative Capital Award, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Fiction, a Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and three Pushcart Prizes. Since 2000, he has taught on the faculty of Columbia University's School of Arts. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's been a while since I've interviewed a creative writing teacher, someone on faculty. When I first kicked off the podcast, because I went to NYU, I interviewed a bunch of the NYU faculty, just kind of get the wheels going. So it's been a while, and I want to... Um, kick off on a question about your teaching life as it, you know, as it circles around writers, which is uh, what, what is like the most profound, insightful, incredible thing you feel like you've learned from teaching creative writing? Wow. So you're going to start me off easy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm throwing this. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Throwing the softball first question. I think when you teach, you're constantly surprised by different universes coming at you in the form of different people. And every student has a sort of world inside them that they're trying to 
render or in their work, or maybe they're trying to create new worlds. And so I think what I've learned is to be really humble about what a student might write and how they might develop. And sometimes I get, I'm lucky to watch students over many years after they leave the program where I teach. And it's always incredible to see how much progress is possible. I might have a student who's really struggling while they're in the writing program and five years, 10 years later, they have a breakthrough simply because they were persistent, mm -hmm. they worked hard, they just kept at it and suddenly made great gains in their work. So I think what I've learned is that I personally can't look at, at a room of writers and say, okay, this person's good and this person's less good. So I, I now really know not to think any of those things because I will be wrong and I will be surprised. And I like not knowing. I like thinking anyone is capable of doing really extraordinary work. And that I think keeps me open to what everybody's doing. Yeah. Um, so that would be one thing. I, I love that. It, it's funny you say that because um, just recently as I've been, you know, kind of getting up into a, a, we're getting close to having done this podcast for a year. So pushing like 50 interviews. Um, and each time I, I do research on a, an author, I realize you, you said something that, that struck me. I realize like there's an entire world contained in this person that I'm going to tap into for an hour. And, and recognizing how there's, um, you know, there, there's so, there's such a huge story in each and every person. I felt both overwhelmed <laughs> and, and incredibly humbled to be able to like, just touch into that, like engage with that for just an hour. It kind of sounds like the same thing a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, it is pretty incredible if you're looking out at a room of students and you haven't read their work yet to realize you're going to start to see into their world, into their value system, into their ambitions, their aspirations. And it's, it's, it's a privilege to do that. And I think it, it's stimulating too, because everyone's artistic universe is their own. Yeah. And I think it's, for me anyway, it's always, it feels healthy to always expose myself to as much as I can. Um, artistic instincts very different from my own because I think we can always really be learning from what yeah. we see and hear around us. Yeah. For, for the people, um, I think if you're a writer and you haven't gone through an MFA, uh, it's kind of like if you're in business and you haven't done an MBA, which it's kind of always circling in the back of your head of like, is this something I should do? Hmm. Um, if you're a writer out there, and there's there's lots of people I know who are considering an MFA or you know would love to do it. Um, how is it changing? Like, how is the format different? Just as a quick side note, in COVID, as compared to like you know past years when you could actually you know be in a classroom or talk to each other or something like that. Well, unfortunately, we're um, we're having all of our encounters uh, over Zoom, mm -hmm. and you know I think that the basic interaction in a in a writing class, at least as I understand it, is for a lot of people to read what you've written, to take it really seriously, to scrutinize it, to try to figure out what you were trying to do, and how they might help you. So, a lot of that can still happen with no trouble over Zoom. Right, but there's a lot that's incalculable about in-person contact. I think our conversations change when we can see each other's body language. I think there's just probably 
more complicated and unexpected expressions and ideas that can arise in a group. But the basic currency of a writing program to give considered challenging feedback on a piece of writing can still happen and is still happening. I think we, we would all love to get back to in-person learning once it's safe. Um, but I have colleagues who teach uh, painting or theater or music and some, some other art form or dance and some other art forms I think are really seriously hampered through yeah. this, this digital medium. And I feel that while there is this significant loss of personal interaction at the intellectual level, a lot can still happen between a writer and, and, and the, and the readers. So yeah. that, that's still there. That's the core of it. And I think, I'm, you know, I'm preparing my classes now for um, this September. And so I'm trying to think about not just doing what I would do in person, but rather how can I change what I do so that it takes advantage of this new form. Yeah, I feel like so many people are in that same boat, you know, just trying to adjust to whatever, you know, my, my wife this morning, as I was leaving um, to go to my office, she was like, you know, it really hit me that we're going to be wearing masks for a really long time. And I think we've kind of collectively gone through a couple of phases of this whole thing. The first one was like, wow, it's the world ending. And then it was, wow, the world's not ending, but what's happening now? And it's almost like it was something about the school you're starting off again for a lot of people that's, that's solidifying this as something that is not going to crush and end the world, but it's also not just going to go away quickly. And so yeah. it's interesting to think of the writing life and the writing world and getting an MFA or just connecting with writers now through a digital medium. It really changes some things. But like you said, it's comforting to know some things aren't changing. Some things are staying the same, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. you can still you can still read and write. Yeah, um, right, right. And some of the discussions we have, the style of those discussions will change. Yeah. But we'll see. I think no one really appreciates yet the depth of the, of the changes we're all going through. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't. Yeah. It's, it's hard to reckon with right now. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, let's dive into you. When did this whole writing journey kick off for you? What, what was the moment? Was there a moment when you read a book or wrote a short story or had a realization that you thought, you know what, like, I want to tell stories. Yeah. Well, I, I remember um, I was probably like 10 years old hanging out with a friend and we were talking about what we wanted to be. And I surprised myself by saying I wanted to be a writer. I don't think I knew that even knew what and it became something I said but honestly it wasn't based on very much um, I, I did always love to read and my my mother in particular was just feeding me books but I don't think I was an especially good storyteller I'm sure as a kid I probably commanded the floor and then made no sense and <laughs> I don't think I had natural storytelling gifts and honestly still don't really think of myself as kind of fundamentally a, a storyteller, uh, although I'd like to be a, a better one. So I think it happened really young and I wrote a little bit in maybe late junior high, high school. I wrote kind of, you know, brokenhearted love poems. I wrote some sort of cliched philosophical musings and things like that. And when I got to college, I, I started writing short fiction in earnest, kind of right away, really atrocious short fiction that um, I'm glad is you know, gone, gone yeah, from right. history. But so, so that's probably when I was really writing. There was that period where I think I was 
announcing myself as a writer based on really very little. So obviously there must have been inner urges and instincts and desires that I was sort of vaguely aware of, but not doing much about. Like I didn't yeah. exactly have a discipline. I didn't have a practice. Yeah, something something you said though is going to produce a a fair amount of like cognitive dissonance for the audience, which is, uh, I read your your bio to kick this off, and you are an author of many books. You have won tremendous awards, and so I think for people listening, when they hear you say, "I don't think of myself as a storyteller," I think that the next imp- impulsive question is then then what are you? What what would you then think of yourself as? Sure, it's a good question, and I suppose I'm I'm making a distinction between certain kinds of writing, and I think what took me a very long time to figure out is how to tell a story where things happen. One thing happens after another, after another. And so I think of story as a series of events in time. And when I was first writing, to be frank, I was a little more interested in the strangeness of language, just the odd things that happened when you could put words together. And those concerns might be considered more the concerns of a poet than a, a fiction writer or a storyteller. Now, I was always reading stories and greedily devouring them and obsessed with them. But I felt that when I tried to write what you might call, a, let's say, a conventional story, I just didn't have the tools really. Uh, I would just say this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it was just awkward and kind of gangly. Mm-hmm. So when I say I don't consider myself a natural storyteller, I guess I'm talking about narrative of a certain kind of fiction where a lot of things are happening and they're moving through time. Uh, my first book was kind of more a collection of concepts and definitions that were invented. And so there wasn't a lot of story in it. Mm-hmm. And I was told that by reviewers. <laughs> so <laughs> that's all I mean. And I suppose it's a big tent. And if you're writing with language, and whether you're a poet or a conventional writer or an experimental writer, it's all maybe one and the same. And maybe we are all just storytellers in that yeah. way. Yeah. What What were some of the things? And I agree with you. So, so just on a quick aside, I, I, um, you know, I view anybody who's you know committed to kind of the expression through some sort of narrative form as being a storyteller. Like that's that that's how yeah. I look at the yeah. world. And I, I yeah. think you kind of can start, you know, creating different you know categories and niches within that. Um, but storytelling to me, because I view it as so fundamental to the human story. Sure. Now we're getting very like matrixy. You know, it, it, you know, to me, it's like we're storytellers. We kind of carry that tradition yeah. that we've inherited and hopefully we'll pass on. So Absolutely. I want to go back, though, like of, of the things that you had to learn. This is super interesting. I, I think this is um, like gold of the things that you had to learn then coming from somebody who had a natural affinity for language and prose and like to see what would happen if you put, you know, certain combinations of words on a page. What were the things you had to learn that really made a big impact to start creating story as you've defined it, cohesive kind of sequences of time, narrative sequences through time? There there are so many. What comes to mind is that I, I tended to feel that if I was describing, let's say, a body in time doing something, I had to almost say, you know, then he lifted his hand and he bent his elbow and his hand came behind his head and then he bent his elbow a little more. I I would have this completely unnatural attention to detail that no one needed to hear, whereas you could just say, he scratched his head. Hey, you broke up just a little Um, bit there. I get microscopically kind of involved. 
Hey, hey Ben, oh, can sorry. you go back? Yeah, after you said he scratched his head, your your Zoom just kind of yeah. backed up a bit. Sorry yeah, about that. No, 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 it's I'm, fine. In, I'm in rural Maine. I'm, we've got the <laughs> fastest that they have. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Let's well, let's, so let's keep, pick back up. I yeah. could be microscopically involved in a sort of gestural description that had no interest in the story. In other words, you know, I, I might spend a page describing someone getting on a bus, finding a seat then signaling is stop getting off the bus and walking. Whereas you could just say he, he went to work. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was about what to leave out and how to create speed around things and, and recognize what mattered and what didn't. And I think honestly, I still, I'm still figuring, trying to figure that out that in any given story, there are things that feel like they matter. And then things that feel like just kind of boring detail that um, you could labor over. So, so I guess that would be a big thing. I feel like I've, yeah. I've been in the process of learning. Let, let me jump in there because I want I I, I want to hear what else. But before you do, I want to I want to go even deeper on this topic, which is, you know, there's almost like a continuum that you're talking about. Which on one side is very little detail, tons of action, tons of speed, and the narrative is just like Dan Brownish. You know what I mean? It's just like pop, it's going. And then the other end is incredibly um, detailed. Victorian <laughs> prose where it's like you're getting lots of information, but the narrative just by definition is going to go much slower. Sure. And so in your life and your writing, how are you making a decision of where you're falling on that spectrum? How do you, how do you decide that? Well, it's, I think probably contextual depending on what I'm writing. And like, I don't think I, I have a whiteboard out in advance and say, I'm going to be 70% Dan Brown and 30% Victorian. But I, you know, I think at any given point, I want to feel that there's a vitality to what's being reported. Um, so I'm, I'm looking, I'm wary of extraneous description. Sometimes, you know, you'll see in a piece of writing that, something happens if so, someone's a couple is in a car and the writer feels obliged to describe what's outside the window and the, oh there's mountains and then there was a sunset and sometimes that can really be crucial to the story but a lot of times it's a sort of window dressing so i'm not privileging action because i think the thing we're not talking about is interior representation what's going on inside characters minds to me this is what's unique about writing no other art form captures at least that I can think of, captures interiority. What are we thinking and feeling that the world can't see, right? We have the privacy of our interior state and writing I think of as a tool that unlocks it. So that's not action, right? That's not a, you know thriller stuff, that, but that is to me the substance of fiction that I really value, that I feel is unique to fiction. So how do you decide? I guess it just really will always depend on where you are in a story and uh, honestly, a bunch of instincts that I can't kind of say I even understand, but I can sense sometimes if there's just imbalances, if, right, if, if there's not enough interiority, if I'm not revealing a character, then why does the story matter at all? Um, you know, we'll go see a movie if we want to just see a car chase. Right. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to try to avoid the question, but I, I think I don't really have a clear answer other than with a specific story and just trying to figure out what that story needs. Do you find yourself making those types of, you know, what, what, as we're talking, you know, I, obviously my brain, I'm like pacing, right? That's what we're talking about is yeah. 
yeah. the pace the the pace of the narrative and um as do you find yourself making changes to the pacing after a set of readers get an eye on it or an editor gets an eye on it or do you feel like you get most of the pacing done before other people start reading it well i want to but i right. rarely i rarely do uh i i want to make it perfect and uh I, but then of course getting other people to read it is a really crucial step you'll get to see what you've written in a totally new way so and i want to be open to making any adjustments possible including tearing the whole thing down and starting over so yeah. you know feedback really does matter um sometimes there's something that i might write a little bit quickly and the pacing is there kind of at the outset and it just is what it is and there might not be a lot of fixing right it sort of is I, I really do rely on other readers. I think they'll, they will always notice things that I can't. And I want to always be able to make adjustments if, if it's going to help what I've written. Yeah. Okay. So, so the first, the, the first thing is, is we're talking about like, the, um, you know, I don't say learning how to be a storyteller, but like kind of like developing those like, like story fundamentals for you. The first one was pacing and, knowing which details to keep in the narrative and which details are great, but they just don't belong. Is there another like big kind of core competency that you feel like you've had to learn um, in this journey? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a funny thing with learning in that I might solve some things for a particular story and then think, okay, wow, I know how to do that now. But then when I try to do it again in a different story, I can't do it. Mm. So I might, capture an interior voice of a character that might be a little bit bitter, a little bit funny, a little bit revealing. And then if I try to do that again, I suddenly don't know how to do it. So I'm curious about, you know, how we can seem to know how to do something in writing, but it isn't always transferable. So, you know, I think what, I, what I'm trying to learn is that every short story or novel has its own kind of code that I have to crack. Mm. And so even if I feel like, oh, I can, I, can, uh, I can describe a house or I can describe a character's thoughts, in general that might be true, but it, it doesn't help in the specific context of a, of a piece of writing. So I think I'm, I'm trying to learn how to always be flexible enough to kind of shift my skills if I have to and learn new ways of doing the same thing. You know, I, writing is very slippery in that way. You might have a story where you write some clever dialogue, and then in the next story, you can't. Right. Um, so does that mean you suck at dialogue, or right, or that you now no longer know how to write dialogue? It, I mean, to me, it means once I set up certain conditions, I could write dialogue, but I can't just write it out of nowhere. Yeah, I think that was what what you said there. I feel like was was super important because I was thinking about, um, you know, as something in athletics or dance, where you know you learn some kind of like foundational skill that then is always kind of laddered yeah. up and improved upon. And how and sometimes writing doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it feels as if, like you said, you're going back to the beginning with learning how to do something just for one project. And I think at least at least a part of that is is it sounds as if you're saying it's because each project you take on has a different life to it right like if you're writing there, there's some authors i interview who write you know largely in the same genre in a series 
you know, the rules don't change that much. Whereas if in each book, the rules are changing, the way in which you write the book kind of inherently changes as well. Yeah. Does that make sense? It sure does. Yeah. I, I, and I, again, I'm sure this is a different issue and problem for every writer. I think we all kind of evolve and struggle differently. I mean, I, I suppose though, you could take two stories of mine that you might think are very similar. And I could just say one was really easy to write and one was hard to write. And so even when I'm in a similar Mm. terrain, let's say um, like a psychologically realistic domestic drama with some family tension and there might be a lot of overlaps, I still might come at those two, those two similar stories sort of differently just out of necessity but, you know, I think I, I appreciate that writing is not kind of like a factory product that you can kind of apply a set of skills to and then get. And and I think it, it's vexing in that way. I think it defies, uh, you know, r- rapid production. Yeah. And, and I think it does humble us and it asks us to kind of reexamine what we're doing. And, and look, sometimes maybe we do get into a mode that really works and we generate a few books or a few stories. And I think that does happen as well. But then there can just be these times where your, your progress is wiped out a little and you have to really rethink everything, which yeah. I think is good. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, it's, it, this is such a fun conversation. It reminds me, um, I, I was having, I don't want to say it's an argument, but a uh, heated conversation with a writer friend of mine. And we, we were talking about like this idea that, you know, some writers start their books or start from the perspective of trying to answer a question or there's something inside of them that they want to express and explore. And some writers start by thinking they want to entertain and, and basically have people be transported and both are a extremely worthy, um, place to start a book from like there is no right or wrong way to start a book you know but but the idea was um you know essentially the toolbox for coming to a book to say i want to explore something that's starting in my insides compared to i want to entertain the toolbox is actually quite different it, hmm. it's actually a different type of like application of the same thing which is telling a story um you just are going to use uh, very different application. And what you're saying kind of is making me think about that, where it's like kind of like this continuous ex- exploratory process um, where the tools are constantly kind of having to be remade or refashioned in a way. Which is, it's just such an interesting combo, like philosophic, philosophy of writing. I don't know if it even exists, but now it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we pioneered it. Well, I mean, I, 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 just to go back to what you're saying, I, I'd like to think that there could be quite a lot of overlap between those two approaches that you mentioned. Right. That, you know, you might be excavating some deep thing that's personal to you, but that doesn't mean you might not desperately want to entertain. And I I think that the word entertain is sometimes used disparagingly around literary writing, but, you know, I see it in a really broad way where it's hard to find a writer who doesn't want to hold the attention of their audience and really draw them in and make them consumed and gripped by what they're writing. And that's entertainment, totally. right? It's so, you know, we, we, we use that word around certain kinds of cultural products, but you know, the, the, the most difficult intense and kind of abstract books to me are wildly entertaining because I want to do nothing but 
be in the presence of, of those books. And so, yeah, you know, I, it's a little tangential, but I, I think that those two impulses, while maybe opposites in some sense, could also kind of be the same if, if you so desire. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's kind of maddening in a way how there's just, there, there's like these really uh, very thin lines that almost demarcate parts of the writing life. And yet none of those lines matter. All of those can be blown through. Like it really is such an open-ended pursuit. And part of the, part of the goal of the podcast, like one of the things I wanted to kick off and explore was just to highlight how different every writer is and yeah. to give yeah. levels of reassurance to writers who are like, well, I do it the wrong way or I do it this right. way. And it's like, right. there is no right or wrong way. Now, now you can learn things that might make it easier for you. You know, that's different. I'm not trying to say everyone's exactly great where they are because we all need to learn and grow. That's part of the human experience. But yeah. um, we all also are on our own path. That's, that's singular to us. Hmm. So, um, so I, I would love to dive in. Like, what is, I, I'm always interested in the people who are working and teaching and I know you have a family. Um, what is like the average writing day look like to you? How many hours are you writing? What does that look like? Do you have a set time? Are you a night owl? Or are you a morning? Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, so I, I try to write first thing in the morning because the day will get started and things will need to happen. And our kids are home from school and I'm, you know, my wife and I are assisting them with their online learning and feeding them and doing all of that. And so I tend to get up pretty early and I try to just sit down and put a little bit of time in and it kind of protects me from the rest of the day, no matter what might happen. And then I'm available for cooking and cleaning and parenting and just or hanging out with my kids. And so for me, I, I, I'm fairly uh, incoherently stupid by after like seven or eight o'clock at night. <laughs> you know, like I, I can barely follow a sitcom. I, I really lose a lot of my higher faculties, which is, I have to say is kind of enjoyable, <laughs> but, I, but it's not a good time for me to work. So I try to go to bed a little on the early side and then just get up and uh, use the mornings well, because generally nobody needs me in the mornings. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the I'm the exact I, I'm the exact same way. Like there's a there's a certain drop off where uh, it's pointless for me to try and do anything that requires thinking. You yeah, know, like I walk the dog. Like that's a really great activity past seven thirty. <laughs> so do do you measure your writing? This is a new question I'm starting to get into, which is more of like how do you know, you know, if you're do, or do you even care to measure how much you're working? Does that play a consideration for you? I sometimes do if um if I'm one of the one of the ways I work is to sometimes go this hasn't happened in a while but I'll go to um a retreat where I can just write uh like a residency and if I have two weeks there I might set a goal for myself that might be a number of words and I will kind of keep diligent track and sometimes I'll just sort of log every day what I did. I'll just write, uh, try to revise opening paragraph of story, feeling this or this or this. It's, I'll keep a sort of slight kind of diary about it. Very, very short. I'm not getting into my feelings or anything, but I'm just trying to document it. And it's a kind of, I guess it's a little bit of bookkeeping, but it, it can kind of increase my feeling of accountability. If I'm trying to get something off the ground and I'm sort of just flailing, I don't, tend to really want there to be much of a record of that. So I don't 
keep track really. If I'm in the middle of a novel and I have some momentum, I might say, well, I'd like to write a thousand words a day and just get to this one point. But there are times when that sort of goal doesn't make any sense where I need to write negative 500 words a day. In other words, I need to go and cut things and cut things and cut things. So I try to just pay attention to what makes the most sense at any given time. And sometimes all you want to do is kind of put your head down and write and generate work. And other times you need to t- take a step back and think about what you've done and be ruthless and cut a lot of it and that sort of thing. Yeah. One, one of the things I'm really, um, I'm really interested in exploring is this, this idea that as people, we can endure a ton of pain if we feel as if the pain is in the service of some progress against a goal that means something to us. So, so to kind of break that down to the less, you know, fuzzy language, like, you know, writers can go through a lot, right? We can edit a lot and we can feel like we're composing a lot and um, we can really push through a lot of tough emotions and, and, you know, we don't want to do this feelings if we feel as if it's moving our story forward. And I think one of the things that gets really hard specifically once you get like a first draft done is you're in the middle of an edit and you're like, am I making any progress against this project at all? Or am I just going in a circle? And I'm saying this as Brian right now, which is like, am I, make, am I getting any closer to having this thing done? And so I'm really curious of how, you know, authors who have had many books done kind of keep their heads screwed on straight when it feels as if the project is, isn't going forward at all. Does that question make sense? I know I kind sure, of it does. A little bit. It does. Yeah. I mean, I might be a little different in if I'm making really minuscule edits and I don't know, going through and just making little cuts. I actually do think of that as important if incremental progress. Like in a way, it's easier for me to quantify that than sort of the earlier stages where so in other words, if I feel like I'm happy with the basic shell of what I've written it, and then I'm just kind of manicuring it a little, that that is, I feel as if I'm over the most of the hurdles and any little thing I do makes a tiny little improvement. And But, you know, I can certainly relate to what you're saying earlier in a project. You know, if I'm trying to get a novel going, and I could just really, I could work for months or a year or more, not sure that it's worth it, not sure mm-hmm. that it will take off, that it will become anything. And, and so that's where there is really no idea of what progress is. Progress becomes an interior feeling you have that this thing is worth aligning yourself to for mm-hmm. maybe three to five years. Yeah. So. I can really relate to what you're saying, but it tends for me to happen earlier on where I'm always wondering, do I even like this? Do I care? This is just boring. Why am I even wasting my time? And that's hard because those deep questions are just very difficult to answer, right? And, and how do you, I mean, like, how do you get to yes or no on any of those? I think, you know, if I notice I'm not working on something for weeks, it starts to become a sign that I'm just not interested enough. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think the world needs another book from me all the time. And uh, so I, I I tend to observe my own behavior. And if I'm, if I wake up and I'm thinking about what I'm working on 
already, if it's in my head, that's a sign that I care about it, that it's, it's either a problem I'm motivated to solve or it's a story that I'm just excited to try to get out. That's a sign that I care and that I want, I want it to succeed. And for me, that's a, just a big distinction. Like if I'm forcing myself to work on something day after day, after a while, I just think, well, why? Like, right. you know, who, who's that for? So often, though, persistence will help reveal what you care about. And, and so I might, find, I might be indifferent to something for months and then crack into it and realize, oh, okay, this is what I really like about this. So it's, a, it's complicated. Yeah. I think persistence matters, but sometimes it turns into stubbornness and you need to occasionally walk away. Yeah, it's it, this is so timely for for Brian for me. Um, I, I've really struggled to like feel like I'm making progress on a project I've been working on for like four years now, right? So it's it's a it's a big investment of my time. Yeah, and at one point it's a project I absolutely loved. Like I like I was obsessed with it, and all yeah. I did was think about it. And um, so I've kind of walked a little bit away from it, and you know, after making some edits and, and it's interesting the past week I had this realization that like, Oh, some of the things that I changed about it after the first draft are all are actually the things that have made me feel bored with it. And I've tried to simplify it. And in some ways the original thing that made me excited was the complexity and scale. And without it, it just didn't have the legs to keep me interested. And the only reason I'm sharing that is just that the distance from the project right? Like, like yeah. the setup for this is that the distance for the project um, gave me the perspective to realize like, oh, I need to actually change it. What I'm bored with is not the project itself, but the changes I've made to it. And so some people yeah. might feel that yeah. way. Like I, I've actually explored this a couple of times with different guests of like, how do you know the difference between something you need to push through a project you just need to keep working at and one that it's like, eh, heart's not in yeah. it and I need to walk away. And it's a hard well, you, question. Yeah. Well, you don't. And, yeah. but honestly, uncertainty is what I love about writing. Like, I think if, yeah. if there was an easy answer to that, suddenly everyone can do this and the whole enterprise has less value. The fact is no one knows anything, right? We don't know what to do every day and we proceed through instincts and urges and ambitions and we, we might really fail and we might produce really underwhelming things. And, but I think that, that uncertainty is what keeps me coming back to writing as an art form is, is it's kind of final unknowability. And, and I, I think that I, at the least I'd like there to be a record of my efforts, my mistakes as well as successes. And I do feel if I write something and even if I have misgivings about it, if it's out in the world, I can kind of forget it in a different way than if it's unfinished and, and no one ever saw it. Mm. So Sometimes there's a, a, a level of housekeeping to simply finishing things. You know, there's, to me, there's always a, there's, there's the dream I have for what I'm writing. And then there's the thing I actually write. And there's going to be a big gap between mm -hmm. what I am capable of and what I would like to be able to do. But the idea might be every time try to get a little closer to realizing the ambition um, but again, I think we don't know and we can't know. You might write something you love and then a reviewer says, this is just a terrible book. Right. And that happens. And then you think, well, what do I, what do I make of that? Like, is that true? Is it just one person's opinion? And so I think as you start to get read and people reflect back to you what you've done, you think, oh, well, that's not what I wanted. But 
do I care what this person thinks or that person thinks? And how do you, how do you bring all that into your own system so that you can keep doing it? So, you know, yeah, these are complicated questions, but I, you know, some people will spend 20 years banging their head against the same novel and then it's worthwhile and others yeah. might, might fail at it. I, but I don't, I don't think there's an easy way to make that determination. Yeah. I've had two guests. One worked for 16 years. The other one worked for 20 years on their first novel. So, so yeah. that is true. Right. And I, and then yeah. I've, I've had some guests who wrote the first novel in months. Yeah. And so it's just, it's such a incredible continuum. Yeah. Um, okay. So I just looked at the time. And uh, as commonly happens in like the snap of fingers, our, our time is coming to a close. And so uh, I'm going to ask you our final five questions. So I added a question recently. Uh, I continue to do this and soon the podcast will just be a bunch of set questions. But I ask the same, the, the, I ask every guest the same questions. And I love to do it because uh, I love the record of it. Firstly, I love to hear all the different answers. And then um, it just highlights the diversity of, of answers and how different every writer is and how everybody is on their own path. And so I'm going to ask you these five questions and uh, this will wrap up our fun little interview. So question number one is this, if you had to pick, this is what I didn't send to you. So it's a little bit of a curveball. If you oh, had no. to pick, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, if you had to pick just one word to describe you, what word would that be? Ben. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that is the, technically the word. Okay, you got it. <laughs> Question number two. If you had to pick a spirit book, so this is a book that like if you died and you were reincarnated as a book, this would be it. Which book would it be? So this is a step down. This would be a reincarnation kind of as punishment, right? I mean, the idea is we move up the... Okay, well, I would say The Third Policeman by Flan O'Brien, Irish writer. Okay. I, and it's a wild, beautiful, heartbreaking, very inventive, strange book uh, that I kind of worship. I, I love it. I'm, I'm going to put it on my, uh, my to-be-read pile. Awesome. Okay, question number three. Is there a specific tool? It can be anything at all, pencil, software, chair, cigarettes, wine, coffee, yeah. whatever, that you absolutely must have to write? Well... I would say no, because I've done without this thing. But the thing that I most like to have is I have these rectangular cardstock um, kind of pieces of paper. They're thick and they're, it's like a rectangle, rectangle and I make notes on it. Um, and I use it when I mostly, most often when I'm working, but sometimes I don't have them. But I'm pretty itinerant. I work in bed, I work at a desk, I work in libraries, I work on a porch. So I, I've never really had a stable working environment. I teach in a place where there are nine of us to, to an office, so I don't have an office. And so I have, have become pretty uh, unattached to what kind of chair I have and all of that. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm interested in this cardstock. Is it like note cards? Is it like... Yeah, like a uh, it's a, yeah, it's it's that thickness. Um, I wish I had one in front of me. I'm not in that room. They're they're just uh, blank pieces of white paper. They're I think the they're the width of a eight and a half. So they're eight and a half inches long and maybe four inches wide. And I just put them vertically and I start making notes like, mm. "You're stupid and boring. Why?" <laughs> <laughs> or you know, "When are you going to get serious and really?" Yeah this and I make notes about things and I accumulate hundreds of these things 
that often make no sense, but it's some little thing I do, some little crutch hmm. that, yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. Question number four. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? Not very well. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think I just, I just, I wait it out. You know, I, I will take breaks from writing if I'm not feeling it. And because I, I don't, you know, it's not like we're making shoes and the world needs them and we better make these shoes so people can cross this bed of hot coals. Writing is a very, you know, pieces of writing are optional products. And so I don't always feel like it's something I have to do, but I want to feel that way. So I try to wait and I try to do things that will keep me interested in the world. So I'll read some things that I might know nothing about. I'll read some history books. I'll read, I tend to try to read nonfiction to maybe wake up some ideas or, you know, I, I coach my son's flag football team and it's just a totally separate thing. That's really fun for me. And so sometimes getting away from writing is what I need. And then I realize some little thing and I get back to it. So, but the ups and downs are hard. I don't think there's a strategy really just you have to survive. Yeah. Right. Survive it. Yeah. Okay. Last question. If you could give one piece of advice to new writers, what would that be? I think it's to write for yourself, but be your own worst critic to not look out at the world and think, how do I do this or that? But rather, how do I get the world that's in me out on the page in a way that satisfies me? Some early reading experience where you were transported and blown away and completely enraptured by a book and figure out what that feeling was and how you might make someone else feel that way and yeah. try to develop your own standards. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to, to wrap this podcast up. Ben, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a, a wonderfully fun conversation to uh, people with the initials BM who are both bald having to talk about books. I mean, like what, what's better for a Thursday, right? I think there must be more of us out there. Next time we got to get a few more. Right. Thank well, you. Thanks for having me. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Ben for his time. If you haven't yet, please go leave us a rating and review on iTunes. You can also download that free ebook, Lastly, my dear listener, I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful week of writing.